Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our March 17th, 2011 edition of the show, 4.07 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash R.G. Larson, and that's L-A-R-S-O-N. All right, uh, much of what NASA does is relatively popular with the American public. Some of its activities, though, are clouded in secrecy and raise suspicions uh, with these same citizens. Is the secrecy just what should be expected uh, from an agency whose activities are often so tied to national security? Or something more radical or sinister going on? All of this is exposed in a uh, new book called The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landings, Censored Photos, and the Face on Mars. Our guest today is author Nick Redfern. Nick works full-time as an author, lecturer, and journalist, and writes regularly for UFO, Fate, 14 Times, and Paranormal magazines. His previous books include Contactees, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, and There's Something in the Woods. He has appeared on numerous television television shows, including the History Channel's Monster Quest and UFO Hunters, the National Geographic Channel's Paranatural, and the Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive. Nick Redfern, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Robert. How's it going? Oh, it's it's going fine here in California. You are on the line from uh, Texas. Is that uh, Dallas, Texas? Yeah, Dallas, yeah. Yeah, how are things out there? Uh, it's, the weather's finally picking up the last couple of weeks. Um, believe it or not, for Dallas, I think about a month ago, we had like eight or nine straight days when it barely got above, above freezing, if it all got above freezing. So. <laughs> yeah, we are pretty much hovering around 70 degrees here. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, that's not bad. <laughs> do most of the time now. We had a few cold days, a little bit of rain. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, uh, so, yeah, this book's quite fascinating. But before we uh, get into your latest book here, I'd just like to talk a little about your uh, background. You've obviously been uh, rather interested in things mysterious and paranormal for quite some time. Does this go back to your childhood? Do you, do you remember how and why it was that these types of things grabbed hold of you? Yeah, I actually do. Um, I, well, I grew up in England, and when um, I was about six years old, my parents took me for a week's holiday to Scotland. And while we we're, while we're in Scotland, we, we spent a day at Loch Ness, you know, which, of course, if you're going to go to Scotland, you've got to go to Loch Ness. Um, and although, you know, I, I don't remember all the details of the trip, obviously just being six at the time, but, you know, I do have a few sort of fragmentary memories of standing on the shores of the loch while my dad told me this story about the Loch Ness Monster, or monsters, you know, obviously if there's something in Loch Ness, there's not just going to be, quote, one of them, you know, there's going to be more than one. Um, and at that age, you know, you kind of equate stories of monsters with tales of monsters under the bed or in the closet, I suppose. <laughs> um, but as I got older, sort of 12, 13, 14, you know, I began reading books on the subject and sort of viewing it more seriously and, and coming to appreciate, you know, what the, the stories were and what the potential implications were, that there could be like a colony of unknown animals living in this huge loch. A lot of people don't realise how big Loch Ness is. It's like 23 miles long, nearly a mile wide and about 800 feet deep. So it's a large body of water. Um, and... From there, you know, I started developing other interests, sort of weird stuff like UFOs, um, you know, paranormal phenomena in general. And then when I finished school, I began working on a rock music magazine in England called Zero and did that for a few years. And I still do quite a bit of music-related stuff today. But um, I began getting more involved then after working on the magazine with freelance stuff. That was like a full-time job that I did for a couple of years. And that sort of gave me a full tutoring if you like in journalism and then I thought well why not try and combine the background in journalism 
with the interest in, you know, whether it's UFOs, Bigfoot, Chupacabra, you name it. And so that's what I decided to do, you know, and just um, pursue a career in that area, even though I still do a lot of sort of freelance, regular news stuff as well, so. So the uh, it's I have quite an interest in this as well, and uh, mm-hmm. we through uh, we, mutual friends is how we yeah. uh, met uh, Greg Bishop and Adam Greitley, and kind of all interested in these sort of subjects. And uh, I I think what intrigues a lot of us about this is that <laughs> there never is a definitive answer. It's like this yeah. mystery that never quits being a mystery, and and that's why it's fascinating. We never get a full on no, this is not true, or 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 yeah. this is true, but occasionally something does come along where we find out oh mm. that that was that was a hoax or that was that yeah. that was easily explained away when something like that happens do you do you have a a feeling of disappointment or do you feel like okay well we can set that aside and now focus our attention on things that yeah. we really don't know about um, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think all of us are looking for answers. And what I try and do is, you know, I try not to be belief-driven. You know, I think if you get into a subject like investigating something like Bigfoot or UFOs, there's often a tendency for people to to, to treat it where, you know, they have to have a particular theory or belief system that it that it's this or it's that. My view is that we should try and avoid belief systems and just look at the evidence. And if one case happens to fall into a hoax category, one was mistaken identity, you know, and another one is potentially real, for me, that's the important thing, is that we get the answers, you know, rather than we try and force fit the evidence into some preconceived notion that we feel comfortable in believing in. So that's what I try and do. You know, yeah, I'd like the answers to what Bigfoot is or the Loch Ness Monster is or what UFOs are, but if I have to sort of discard ten hoaxes before, you know, you get one good case, well, that, that's how it goes, you know, and I think um, if, if I had sort of a biased approach, that would be the wrong approach, you know. It would sort of destroy the whole ethic of what you're trying to do. You know, I try and treat all these investigations and stories as, as I would a mainstream, you know, journalistic expose, you know, just apply the same rules and regulations, if you like. Kind of approach it with a, a, a sense of wonder while maintaining a uh, degree of agnosticism? Yeah, I think, I think you have to because if you... I've seen people who, you know, get into the investigating things like UFOs with an unbiased, open mind, and after a while they become so um, sort of saturated in a certain belief system that they then deny the reality of any potential evidence that might go against that viewpoint, and it becomes, and it really does for a lot of people, become a belief-driven issue, like an article of faith, rather than an admittance that, well, something's going on, but we don't really know what. So let's sort of have a look at all the theories and all the data. You know, I've never really understood why there seems to be a need for the UFO phenomenon to be extraterrestrial or or whatever. You know, I I don't understand why it has to be this or that. You know, if it's a mystery, it's still a fascinating issue to be resolved. And, you know, whichever direction it leads in well well so be it you know what what does it matter and i think it does matter to some people because they hold you know they start developing belief systems and that's sort of like a fatal mistake because you end up being biased then whether consciously or deliberately or not but you do end up having a biased approach to the investigation yeah i think we have enough religions already (laughs) yeah yeah we don't we don't need um you know aliens and ufos to be turned into a religion and although most people might tell you they don't view it like that the reality is they do you know it's when you have a belief in something which is unprovable that's that equates with a religion you know people might take offense that i said that but you know it's like there's evidence for the existence of the moon and the pacific ocean you know you go to the coast of california and see the pacific ocean the idea that there's a literal heaven and hell is an article of faith. We don't have proof of it. And right now, we don't have proof that UFOs have alien origins. It's a theory. You know, as I said, people might take offense, but that is, that is the harsh reality of the truth. So. Yes, yes. So uh, why was it that you decided to uh, focus on uh, NASA in your new book? 
Well, I think one of the reasons was because, you know, over time, when you write books and do magazine articles and radio shows, I'm sure you know this yourself, you know, sometimes people will contact you and say, hey, you know, I heard this or read that, and I wanted to tell you about my experience. And probably over the course of, you know, sort of 10, 12 years, I'd probably got 10 or 15 good, really good leads and stories from people who were either worked from NASA or NASA contracting companies, that sort of thing, and said, you know, I'm happy to tell you the story and happy for you to use the story as well. You know, so I do pretty extensive interviews with um, try and follow up and get corroborative data, that sort of thing. And I realized, having done that, that I had sort of a tremendous amount of material that had never been seen before. And it was all relevant to NASA. And I think one of the important things I've found when writing a book is you don't want to go over old, just over old ground. You want to be able to bring a significant large amount of new material to the table and present it to the reader, you know, so they don't just feel, hang on, I've read all this before. And so that, that was one of the main considerations, that not only was I putting information out about NASA and UFOs and things like this, but the, the substantially it was new material that, um, you know, could sort of take the, the study of the phenomenon further. Yeah, there were plenty in there that I had never heard before and was was quite fascinated by. And this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Nick Redfern, and we're discussing his book, The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landing, Censored Photos, and the Face on Mars. Uh, I have to say, Nick, that the uh, the conspiracy theory that the moon landings were faked um, has always been a bit hard for me to take seriously. Uh but you, you do a good job of addressing the points of, of the conspiracy theorists. Uh, so what are some of those points, are, and are yeah. any of them valid? Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the, you know, the, the biggest conspiracy theory level that NASA is, that the moon landings didn't go ahead, you know, that they were sort of fabricated in a studio or out in the desert of somewhere like Area 51, you know. Um, and the the theory or the conspiracy theory that the moon landings didn't go ahead actually has a huge following. For example, in 1999, a Gallup poll was initiated which all across the country, which demonstrated that approximately 18 million Americans believe we did not go to the moon. And that was, 30, that was 12 years ago. You know, 18 million people is the size of some countries, you know. <laughs> and, and that sort of demonstrates the sheer scale in which this sort of belief system has permeated across society. Um, some of the theories, you know, one is whether or not back in the 60s we actually had the technical and scientific capabilities to do this, uh, to actually go to the moon, put people on the moon and successfully bring them back. Um, other stories relate to the fact that on one of the moon missions where we have film footage of it, when the astronauts are planting the flag on the surface of the moon, it seems to wave and, and shudder, which in a vacuum, which the moon, you know, having no atmosphere, there's no air, so there's no wind. So there shouldn't be any movement um, in the flag. So, you know, it's issues like this that have sort of raised red flags, if you like. But my personal opinion, you know, I call the, I call the book The NASA Conspiracies because it's a study of conspiracy theories leveled at NASA. But... In this case, I don't think the conspiracy theory that we didn't go to the moon is valid. I think we actually did go in the fashion that NASA said, and that in this sense the conspiracy theorists are wrong when they say we didn't go. I think there are valid reasons behind that, which several which I'll, I'll explain to you, the main ones. One is that when the astronauts went to the moon, they brought back with them a substantial amount of moon rock, which has been independently analyzed outside of NASA. And there's no doubt, you know, that this is not terrestrial rocky. There's no doubt it was, you know, from another world. Uh, it's makeup sort of radically different. And so I think that's a, a very good point of the, you know, we did go. Uh, another one, you know, I talked about this issue of the flag. You know, you can, you can type in, go to YouTube or somewhere and type in, you know, American flag, moon landing hoax, and it'll it'll put up the imagery. But what a lot of people who have linked to this and put information on the internet about it, they only always show, for the most part at least, the first bit of footage when the guys are planting the flag and it does move. But if you see the entire footage, which goes on for about 30 minutes, the only time the flag actually moves is when the astronauts are handling it. 
for the rest of the time, it doesn't move at all, which is what you would expect in a vacuum like the moon. And one of the other areas is just related to human nature. Uh, for example, the moon landing program, when you, when you figure out all the people who work for NASA and all the subcontracted companies that built, for example, like fuel boost, fuel um, rockets, um, booster rockets, that sort of thing, life support systems, altogether there was more than 400,000 people worked on the Apollo program. Out of that 400, I, I find it totally unfeasible that we would not have like a single whistleblower or two come forward to say, you know, hey, I was the second cameraman in the hangar where we filmed it or whatever. And that, that hasn't happened. And I think it's just unfeasible that not even one or two of 400,000 people would come forward if they knew this was a hoaxed event. So I think it's things like this and the sheer logistics that do make me believe we did go to the moon and that, you know, the, the conspiracy theories have it wrong on this point. Uh, yeah, the, the one thing that I uh, always thought about, and I don't, I don't know I, I, if uh, you have thought about this as well, is that um, perhaps the main reason for going to the moon was to one-up the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. This is in the middle of the Cold War and all of this. So surely with the Soviet scientific expertise, they would have been able to somehow poke holes through a fake and eagerly would have to avoid uh, being one-upped. And the fact mm -hmm. that they didn't do this makes me think, well, that it really happened. Yeah, but that's actually a very good point because we do know today that, you know, the, the Soviets had extensive listening stations that were listening, you know, on the conversations when the astronauts were going to the moon. And, you know, you're quite right that if the Russians had any sort of proof, which they surely would, given all their tracking expertise, they had any proof that the moon landings were faked and didn't go ahead in the fashion NASA, NASA said, and they could prove it and they released it to the world, you know, it would bring the entire U.S. space program to a grinding halt, and people would probably just lose complete faith in anything that came out of the mouth of government, you know, and, and it would have been a major, major disaster. Um, but again, the fact that the Russians never did this suggests to me they never had any, any information suggesting the moon landings were anything other than what we're told they were, successful landings on the moon. So I think, you know, that's a good pointer that... Uh, the very people who should have been outing this if it was a hoax didn't, and that suggests there is no validity to the hoax theory in my mind. Yeah, and I, I think people forget how driven the whole thing was yeah. by the Cold War. And, yeah. you know, when they say, well, why, why did we quit going? It's just like the whole point was to prove that we could get there before yeah. the Soviets could. And then once we did that, yeah, we got some scientific data, and that was all well and good. But the, the cost was quite high, the monetary cost of this. And so um, we already made the point, and no, no reason to keep going back at that expense. No, you're right, and, you know, you, you, ha you do have to look at it in, from the historical perspective because the Russians, you know, they, they got the first satellite in space, Sputnik, they launched the first animal into space, and they launched the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin, and the first woman into space. So, in other words, you know, these are major areas where the Russians got there first, and really the only way to trump that was to land somebody on the surface of the moon. And, you know, you're quite right, that's precisely what happened, that it was a tremendous cost. You know, there was this huge scientific and technical push to get the project completed before 1970, according to what President Kennedy had basically said, you know, this is going to be the plan. He said in 1962 at a speech, you know, we're going to get there by the dawning of the 70s. And so there was this tremendous push to do that. Um, and, you know... When you look at it from the Cold War perspective of psychologically, you know, psychological one-upmanship, if you like, although certain scientific and technological, technological achievements were made and, you know, various scientific experiments were done and analysed on the moon, etc., and brought back to the Earth, a significant goal of the whole thing was to sort of shake up the Russians and say, hey, you know, we got here first and you'll never, ever be able to take that back or change history, you know, what's done is done. Yeah, so, um, and, and there was that yeah, sense and, that we were at, at war in, in the entire world for hearts and minds, for people to line yeah. up with the, the West or with the Soviets, and, oh, well, you know, this makes the, the U.S. look 
better, more powerful, more. Yeah. And uh, so kind of that whole uh, PR thing. Yeah. So, yeah, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Nick Redfern. And we're talking about his uh, most recent book, The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landings, Censored Photos, and The Face on Mars. So, yes, the, uh, let's talk about The Face on Mars. Uh, th- this has always quite intrigued me, and I'm not really sure what to make of it. But I do know the first time I saw a picture of that in a book, and before I even read the caption... I said to myself, that's a face. And, 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 I, and I didn't even know it was from uh, the surface of Mars. It was just a book I happened to pick up and thumb through. And, you know, I, I didn't need any prompting to, to come to that. And so now we, uh, we were later told by the authorities that it was a trick of the light. It, w- it wasn't really what it looked like. So can you give us a little bit of a, of a timeline of uh, what has happened since the original yeah. Viking images caused uh, this stir? Yeah, sure. Well, basically, the, the story of the face on Mars goes back to July 1976, when NASA's Viking 1 space probe was photographed, was, was circling Mars and photographed um, an area called Cydonia, which lies about 10 degrees north of the Martian equator. And amongst the, fo- the many photographs that the uh, Viking um, space probe took, um, several showed what looks like eerily like a, a gigantic, and I do mean gigantic, um, carved face staring upwards from the surface of the planet. Now, uh, NASA doesn't avoid talking about the face on Mars, but their, their perspective or their viewpoint on it is that it's kind of like people seeing faces in clouds, you know, that if you look hard enough and close enough when the shadows are in the right direction and the light's at a certain level and angle, it looks like a face. And they, that was their view, that, you know, it's just one of those rock formation anomalies, if you like. And, of course, you know, everybody occasionally can see faces in clouds. The important difference with things like the face on Mars, though, is, you know, after time a cloud dissipates and dissolves. The face on Mars is like a static entity, and as long as photographs can be obtained, to a degree at least, you know, we can study what this thing shows or doesn't show. Now, when I was doing the research for the book, you know, I interviewed um, various players in the uh, face on Mars research community, one of them being a man named uh, Matt Tonis, who wrote a book in 2004 called After the Martian Apocalypse, which is very balanced look at the face on Mars controversy. And having read Mac's book and having interviewed him extensively um, for the book, um, he, his research has left me in very, very little doubt at all that what we're seeing is evidence of some very old, very ancient carved structure, probably constructed out of an original real mesa, but one that was sort of sculpted, if you like, using mega-scale engineering. Um, Now, most researchers of the face on Mars controversy who believe, as I do, that it is an ancient carved structure, don't believe we're talking about something carved, you know, two, five, ten thousand years ago. We could be talking quarter of a million or half a million years ago, um, when possibly, you know, Mars was a very different world to what it is today. For example, we know even from photographs and footage that we have from Mars right now that at the polar ice caps there's a tremendous amount of frozen water. There are even a few very weird NASA photographs that seem to show what eerily looks like running water. Um, There are other photographs showing what looks like trees and shrubs um, and bushes in some cases. They become known as banyan trees. If you type in banyan, B-A-N-Y-A-N, trees into google plus mars you'll see these photographs which look extremely weird and and you know they look like strange vegetation now if mars isn't the dead and barren world that we're told it is today the theory is that maybe half a million years ago perhaps in some respects it was not too dissimilar to the earth you know with an atmosphere a culture societies countries etc but if that is the case then clearly something massively catastrophic must have happened in Mars's ancient past where, you know, the in terms of its environment and its civilization, etc., the planet must have sort of spiraled down into pretty much, you know, destruction to the point where today it's pretty, I won't say it's a dead world, but it's a fairly desolate world. 
Um, and it might well be the case that the only things that we would see left after such a huge passage of time would be the sort of larger, sturdier objects, like, you know, a, a, a huge face carved on a natural mesa. Um, and what's more intriguing is that literally only like a stone's throw from the face, and you can find these photographs actually on NASA's own website, uh, what look like, eerie like um, pyramids, like Egyptian pyramids. Um, and it's very difficult to sort of reconcile when you see these pictures that are, they could be sort of wind-blasted hills or anything like that. They look like definitive pyramids. And I think, you know, the important factor here is that when you have a huge face-like structure that looks just like an Egyptian sphinx or the Egyptian sphinx, and then you have pyramids pretty much next to it, you know, this has inevitably given rise to the, the theory, you know, if this... If the face on Mars was built eons ago by indigenous Martians and they had the ability to leave the planet, you know, if they developed space flight, is it possible they came here as a last-ditch attempt to sort of at least give some sort of survival to, you know, a final armada of their civilization, came here and influenced some of our early cultures in terms of architecture and things like that? You know, you have to look at the Egyptians and realize that their civilization didn't sort of steadily advance over the centuries. It almost went from primitive hunter-gatherer level to highly sophisticated levels, you know, building things like the pyramids. And, you know, the theory is, well, were we helped? Um, and, you know, I, I do personally think it's way too much of a coincidence, as I said, that we have this sphinx-like face coupled with pyramids on Mars. And then we find exactly the same thing in Egypt. And I think this is one of the reasons why the stakes could be so high when it comes to the face on Mars and why there might even be secrecy surrounding it at a governmental level because possibly government agencies realize that if we open up this can of worms concerning the face on Mars, it may well profoundly alter our beliefs, religious beliefs, our, you know, our historical assumptions of what our past was like and, you know, open us to a whole different world, if you like, that we never really knew, you know, was, was part of our history. And um, for that reason, it might be perceived as a very good reason to sort of bury the entire story and not have to deal with it. So the, are, are there any uh, people you know of within the establishment, within NASA, JPL, or the other uh, scientific establishment that, that do... Uh, lend credence to this uh, line of thinking that do think that the the face on Mars is a uh, constructed uh, uh, structure? Well, not... yeah. well, publicly, for the most part, most of mainstream science and the astrobiology communities, etc., don't give it any credence. However, and granted, you know, we're still to a degree in the dark as, as when it comes to, you know, government attitudes to this. But there have been long-standing rumours and, and even revelations, but for the most part from whistleblower-type sources, talking about how, you know, there is this sort of fear, if you like, almost, that there are people within... or there are people in government, the theory goes, who know that the face on Mars is artificial, that there have been closer missions to Mars, covert missions that may have secured far better phot uh, photography, etc., and, and re revealed that, you know, what we're seeing really is artificial, even if we don't know who built it. And the theory goes that, you know, there's this deep-seated fear at an official level that if we, op if we reveal that, yes, Mars did once hold life and that there does seem to be very close parallels between the architecture, if you like, of the face and the pyramids, with what we're seeing on, on Earth in some of our ancient cultures, it's inevitably going to have people realize there's a connection. And what bearing will that have on our religious teachings? You know, does it mean that all the stories about the gods coming down from the skies are actually based on not gods at all, but, you know, the surviving remnants of some group of Martians who managed to flee the planet before it spiraled into destruction and came here? You know, what effect would that have on mainstream religion? Well, the answer is it could have a huge effect. And the theory is, you know, this is why those in the know will not endorse the idea that the face is real because 
of the fear, not necessarily just because it's an admittance that aliens existed or still exist even. That, I don't think, is the primary reason for the secrecy. It's these spiraling spin-off effects of how it might certainly psychologically affect different cultures and long-held belief systems about our planet and, you know, the bigger picture of, of our belief systems, etc., yeah, I, I kind of think if, if that were the case, that um, there, there would be a period of, of sort of disruption mm. on, on Earth, but, but ultimately it would be a good thing that people would, would break away from uh, yeah. uh, beliefs not based in, in fact and come to a yeah. place where we're more in tune with the, the truth. But now, um, I, I understand that we have NASA and different government agencies where people may be under... Uh, um, sort of a, uh, a a sway of of interpreting things a certain way, but are you know are there not I- independent scientists who who have access to much of this data? I mean, you said m- many of the photos are quite uh, are quite. Oh yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I should stress. Yeah, I mean, I should stress that you know a number of researchers independent of NASA have done a lot of very good research. Um, into the face on Mars, you know, and have, have co- also come to the conclusion that, that what we're seeing is definitively artificial. You know, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. And I think that's a, you know, that's a very important um, issue to, 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 to take note of. Um, the, 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 I guess the biggest issue is relative to NASA's, you know, personnel who are currently working on established NASA programs. For the most part, they don't endorse the idea that it's artificial. But there are a lot of independents, you know, uh, researchers of Mars, um, astronomers, etc., people in the sort of astrobiological <coughs> community who do believe that, you know, this, this far outweighs, you know... Um, you know, the idea we should just ignore it, you know, that there is something to be investigated and it could be to our cost if we don't study it. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the, you know, when you talk about people in government, you know, inevitably um, part of the reason for not wanting to get into these areas is because, you know, there's sort of higher hands pulling the strings, etc. If you're an independent person with no ties to a relevant agency or whatever, you know, there's there's no reason for you not to say anything if you believe it. Often people find their hands tied, you know, when they have a job that pays a pension, you know, and they're reliant on it for the mortgage. And, you know, you don't need sort of conspiratorial issues of threatening someone's life to silence them. Just the realisation, hey, if you talk about this, you know, you lose your job, you lose your pension, you lose your medical coverage, you lose your home. You know, yeah. that, those alone are enough reasons to convince people not to talk about stuff without sort of going, as I said, down like some X-Files conspiracy path of, you know, threatening the life of someone. So. Well, yeah, I think this would be something different than the, the whole uh, uh, moon landing being faked, whereas there were so many, as, as you said, hundreds of thousands of people who would mm. have uh, some sort of connection to it and would yeah. all have to be sort of... Uh, on board with the lie, with whereas the face on Mars is more like we just have these images and it's a matter yeah. of interpretation, and yeah, uh, you're right. So it's it's nothing more than that. I can see how there could be a sort of uh, within an institution a sort of swaying of people to interpret it a certain way, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. But I I find those images fascinating, and and I'm just really not sure what to make of it. I mean, it, I I suppose it it is possible that it could be. Uh, evidence of an ancient civilization and it is very intriguing and i think it is something uh that we should look at more so yeah this is out the rabbit hole this is out the rabbit hole kuci in irvine robert larson here and uh, i am speaking today with nick redfern and we're talking about his book the nasa conspiracies the truth behind the moon landing censored photos and the face on mars uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the astronauts that you mention in the book. Uh, you share some stories about um, astronaut Gordon Cooper and uh, some UFO claims. It's really quite startling. Uh, can you share some of that with us? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, people, a lot of people are sort of skeptical of the whole idea that UFOs are real. You know, say, well, UFOs are only seen by crazy people or somebody, you know, is just... Uh, 
wants a bit of publicity and, uh, you know, 15 minutes of fame, etc. It's actually not the case at all. In fact, you know, it's generally the opposite. You know, a lot of people who've seen UFOs and reported them are highly qualified observers. And, and one of these is NASA's, uh, or was, he's now deceased, uh, astronaut Gordon Cooper. Gordon Cooper was one of the original Project Mercury astronauts. But prior to becoming an astronaut, he was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force. And at the height of the Cold War in 1951, he was stationed in West Germany. And, of course, you know, with it being the Cold War and the Soviets being the biggest potential threat, the, the pilots would often fly missions, you know, on the West Germany-German border purely to sort of say to the Russians, hey, you know, don't think about launching a sneak attack. You know, we're all sort of lined up and ready and prepared for it. Um, and, you know, that was sort of like routine things where each nation would sort of would sort of go as far as they could to the borders of the other country just to, you know, sort of show a bit of military force, if you like. Um, and on one particular occasion when Cooper's um, unit was doing this, they actually reported seeing, um, essentially, the best way to describe it is like a squadron of sort of classic flying saucer-type craft soaring across the skies of West Germany. And, of course, Cooper, as a qualified pilot, you know, someone trained to recognize an aircraft at a distance or close up, etc., said it was clear these objects were circular, there was no wings, tails, propellers, jet engines, nothing. They were just like gleaming, silvery flying saucers. These sightings actually went on for the, over the course of several days, at the end of which um, the, their superior officer said, well, don't worry about it, you actually, it's all a case of mistaken identity. You didn't see UFOs, you actually just saw high-flying seed pods <laughs> which is probably the strangest explanation I think the Air Force has ever come up with to try and explain away a UFO encounter or a series of UFO encounters. And the important thing is it wasn't just Cooper's, um, Cooper himself who saw it, you know, it was the entire mission. You know, the idea that they could mistake closely flying seed pods for distance, vast flying saucer type crafts is just absurd. Uh, but nevertheless, that was the official theory. And then in 1957, um, again, prior to him becoming a NASA astronaut, Cooper was stationed at um, Edwards Air Force Base, and he was working at the Experimental Flight Test Engineering Division. Two of his friends and colleagues, um, James Bittick and Jack Gettys, were actually out at, the, at a dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base taking photographs and film footage of aircraft coming into land when they said they saw, again, like a gleaming flying saucer, and the way they described it was kind of like something out of the old Day the Earth Stood Still film where this object um, came into view slowly, loomed over them only about 150 feet away and then slowly landed on the desert floor only to suddenly shoot away again shortly afterwards at high speed. Well, um, the, the pair of them had the presence of mind because they were photographers and you know skilled in film footage collection, etc., actually filmed the object. Um, raced back to Cooper and said, you know, hey, we've just photographed and filmed a flying saucer. So he quickly called the Pentagon, who said, you know, they wanted a courier to get it over there immediately. Um, told Cooper not to print any of the negatives and, you know, make copies of the footage or anything like that, which Cooper didn't. But he said the, the guy he spoke to on the phone never said to him, don't look at the, the photographs or the imagery. <laughs> so that's precisely what he did. And he said it showed, you know, like a, a flying saucer. Um, unsurprisingly, the footage went to the Pentagon and was never seen again. So that was sort of the end of that story. But it was things like this and, you know, then becoming a NASA astronaut and realizing the sort of sheer wonder, if you like, of the universe, that he began speaking more, comfortably felt more open about speaking about UFOs and alien life. And uh, in 1978 and 1985, when lobbying was going ahead to try and get the United Nations to set up its own um, UFO investigation project. Um, he actually lent his, uh, lent his support to this particular operation. And this is just a quote from um, what people, uh, excuse me, what Cooper told the United Nations in a, in a statement that he specifically prepared for them. Um, from my association with aircraft and spacecraft, I think I have a pretty good idea of what everyone on this planet has and their performance capabilities. And I'm sure some of the UFOs, at least, are not from anywhere on Earth. 
I believe these extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews are visiting this planet from other planets which are a little more technically advanced than we are on Earth. Now, you know, anyone could make a statement like that. When you realize that's a direct quote from a NASA astronaut who traveled into space, you know, then you realize that something more profound is going on. And I think when we have people like Gordon Cooper coming forward, it acts as a good demonstrator, if you like, that, you know, highly credible people are seeing UFOs. And, and when they're the very people going into space, you know, I think that sort of raises the stakes even more to a degree. And uh, so Gordon Cooper, he he stuck with this story for his entire life and, and never yeah. wavered on that. And the the two other uh, uh, gentlemen that uh, they were the ones that actually filmed it, the the mm -hmm. uh, thing over at Edwards, uh, the sort of saucer like craft uh, landing, or um, did they corroborate this as well? Oh yeah, I mean they, they were clear in that. Yeah, they. Were the important thing is, you know, they said they were only 150 feet approximately away from it. You know, if you see something substantially sized only 150 feet from you, coming down in a desert location, you know, where your view isn't um, affected by trees or houses, etc., you know, you're going to, even if it's only there for a minute or so, you're going to get a good look at it. You know, it's just a dry lake bed and something pretty large comes down. There's nothing excluding your view. And that's why they filmed it, because they realized they were seeing something extraordinary. So, in other words, we had two eyewitnesses to the object, somebody else who viewed the negatives, uh, who went on to become an astronaut, and we have the very fact that the film vanished, never to be seen again. You know, I think all these issues combined suggest a sort of a profoundly significant incident or event took place. Yeah, some people might say, well, this was a uh, a terrestrial craft. This was something, mm -hmm. some secret craft that our government uh, or maybe some other government was working on. But it, that seems a bit odd if you would think it, something like that would be super above top secret that they would just haphazardly let somebody like that yeah. who didn't have the proper clearance to see it. Yeah. No, you're right. I think, you know, I mean, when people talk about UFOs, I think it is a valid point that, you know, some UFOs, I am actually certain, are classified military vehicles. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. A lot of people want to paint the subject, the UFO subject, in very black and white terms, that it's either this or it's either that. And I think the reality is, if we ever get the full answers, UFOs are going to be a combination of things. I think some genuinely are anomalous objects you know whether they're extraterrestrial literally whether they're some sort of you know people today with things like quantum physics are talking about extra and multi-dimensions you know is it something multi-dimensional extra-dimensional i think that's a possibility but equally i do believe some ufos are classified military vehicles and probably the government of the military is quite happy for people to think they're seeing UFOs if these craft are inadvertently seen when they're being test flown, because it acts as a good acts as a good cover story. Right, you know, and, and we know will start talking about little green men, and you know it, it keeps people away from the fact that the military's test flying some radical aircraft. However, where I think that issue kind of falls down is in cases where, for example, you have low flying UFOs over cities where nobody's going to test fly you know, um, a classified prototype military aircraft over New York City. Or, for example, there was a famous case a few years ago in Phoenix, become known as the Phoenix Lights. You know, to test fly something like that, that led to the story of the Phoenix Lights, this huge triangular formation of lights seen over Phoenix in 97, is absurd because everybody was out there with cameras and, you know, camcorders, etc. And I think that applies to this case, you know, why test something in a location where guys are already cleared to go out there filming, um, you know, other other projects? And it would have been clear to everybody that these two guys didn't have any sort of clearance to know about, you know, super-secret aircraft that might have been tested. And so, in other words, why expose them to it in the first place? You know, why risk um, the story and the prototype aircraft, if that's what it was, why risk that coming tumbling out and, you know, in the worst-case scenario, the Russians finding out about it? 
Unless, of course, Nick, it, it was a, a, a PSYOP, a psychological operation, <laughs> wanting people to see this, wanting them to think it uh-huh. is uh, extraterrestrials or something else to sort of test the process of creating belief systems. There, there is that possibility as well. Oh, you're right, there is. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that I think, you know, government agencies have sort of at times denied the reality of UFOs, but other times they've tried to perpetuate belief because, as I said, on the one hand, it acts as a good cover for their military activities if somebody sees a weird aircraft in the sky. You know, imagine if you'd seen the stealth fighter or the stealth bomber, this huge black-winged sort of delta triangular-shaped craft. 20 years ago, when it was being test flown, 30 years ago, I should say, um, you might think you were seeing a UFO. And as I said, that acts as good cover. But there's another strand to this as well, where, you know, government agencies may want to test the waters and promote UFO stories to see what the public response is. And, you know, if government agencies have a realization or a suspicion that there are genuine UFOs, they may want to know how the public would react if you know, the day came when the UFOs kind of arrived en masse, if you like, and, um, you know, showed themselves to the world. Would people panic? Would they be accepting of it? Would they be fearful? Would they be running around like headless chickens, you know? Or would it be a combination of everything? And until that point happens, you're pretty much in the dark. So how could you kind of guess or, in, or possibly anticipate what the reaction would be. Well, maybe you stage a fake UFO incident and then you sit back and see what the reaction is. You know, do people go run into the mental asylums or churches or do, do they just stand there with their mouths wide open? Um, and I think that could come into play in some cases, that there have been staged events to test the waters and to test public response. And even... The military's own response, you know, let's test some of our guys and see, how, you know, do they, we've trained these guys, you know, to fight in war. If they're faced with something truly unknown looking, are they just going to crumble or are they just, are they going to, you know, be mindful of their sort of military teachings and, and be able to face up to it? Or, um, you know, and, and if the people do crumble and, you know, just go on their knees babbling, that's sort of like a major national security issue if your own troops are going to respond in that way. So mm-hmm. I think that could be a, a valid angle as well. All right, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Nick Redfern. We're discussing his book, The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landing, Censored Photos, and The Face on Mars. Uh, we're just about out of time here, Nick. Um, real quickly, uh, it, it wasn't just uh, Gordon uh, Cooper who reported uh, uh, seeing UFOs as far as astronauts are concerned. Uh, there was, uh, who else was there? Edgar Mitchell or there's some others? Yeah, I mean, there's Edgar Mitchell, and there's actually one case, a very lesser-known one, that I found used the Freedom of Information Act and actually got officially declassified files um, that talk about how on the Gemini 4 mission in 1965, um, supposedly, this is, this is from an, S- an FBI investigation where somebody in NASA was leaking information out to a, a UFO group, a, a civilian UFO group, and the story was that the NASA... Um, NASA's Gemini 4 mission in 1965 supposedly had uh, secret and advanced technologies on board to track for UFOs in space. Um, NASA took this story very seriously um, to the extent that they visited the homes of people in this UFO group, demanded to know who in NASA they'd been speaking to, tried to trace down this... um, NASA whistleblower, if you like, or deep throat type source, and actually never did find them. But the, they were highly concerned that, you know, somebody was spreading stories from within NASA about the Gemini 4 astronauts not just seeing UFOs, but actually having tracking equipment on board the craft. Now, you know, it sounds a controversial story, aside from, you know, as I point out, these, these files where we have the story from actually surfaced officially and legitimately through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act. You know, anyone can access them now. And so, in other words, I suspect there are probably a lot of cases like this where NASA astronauts may have been involved in classified missions to look for and, you know, monitor for UFOs. 
Yeah, we could uh, <clears throat> we could go on and on about this, and it's a fascinating subject. And I, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, Nick, to talk oh, about sure. this today. Uh, do you anything you want to leave us with? Do you have a, a website you want to mention, or um, any about any of your other work you want to let us know about before we have to go? Yeah, sure. I've got a, if people want to find out more about the books that I do, they can go to uh, nickredfernsbooks.blogspot.com. Um, and I have a new book out in June called The Real Men in Black, which is a history of the whole the Men in Black mystery, the, the real-life Men in Black as opposed to the uh, the Hollywood version, shall we say. Okay, well, that sounds like great stuff. And uh, the website again? It's nickredfernsbooks.blogspot.com. NickRedfernsBooks.blogspot.com. Nick Redfern, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us today. Again, the book, The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landing, Censored Photos, and The Face on Mars. Okay, thanks again. Thanks, Robert. See you later. All right. Talk to you later. Okay, yes. And uh, again, <laughs> that book, The NASA Conspiracies, The Truth Behind the Moon Landing, Censored Photos, and... The face on Mars. And uh, speaking of space-related things, we will have coming up in just about a half hour planetary uh, radio. So a little bit different perspective there. But Matt Kaplan's ready to go with his usual uh, Thursday early evening fair, counterspin, and planetary radio. And I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's Facebook dot com slash rg larson so this is robert larson closing out out the rabbit hole i will be talking to you next week this it's kuci 88.9 fm and irvine also on the web at kuci.org i'm going to leave you with a little something here from supernova roger the clock is operating we're underway